Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you find fine podcast products. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Also, if you have questions or comments for the show, please email them to us at unwind at acton.org. That's unwind at acton.org. If we read your question or comment on the podcast, we'll give you a complimentary book from the Acton Catalog. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. This week... We won't raise the roof, but we will talk about raising the debt ceiling and the curious case of New York Republican Congressman George Santos's biography. But first, I want to hit the ice in Philadelphia. Uh, plenty of things hit the ice. That's the city that throws batteries at Santa Claus. So already an interesting sports culture to talk about. But the big story from about a week ago is about Philadelphia Flyers defenseman Ivan Provorov. Uh, So the background of this story is on January 17th, a Philadelphia Flyers game versus the Anaheim Ducks. Uh, The Flyers celebrated Pride Night, um, celebrated the annual Pride Night in celebration and support of the LGBTQ community. So as part of all of this, the team had special uh, Pride-themed jerseys that they would wear for warm-ups. So the teams, if you're not a hockey fan, uh, maybe about... 30, 40, 30 minutes before first puck drop, teams will come out for about 15 minutes of warm-ups, skate around, shoot around, get everybody warmed up, get the goalies warmed up, have them face some shots, go back into the locker room, and then come back out for the start of the game. So they would wear these themed jerseys for uh, their pride celebration that would later be auctioned off to benefit Flyers charities. Uh, Lots of promotions like this happen with NHL teams throughout the year. I'm a fan of the New York Rangers. They do one where it's uh, hockey fights cancer and they auction the jerseys off. This happens a lot. Uh, If we look at Flyers charities, the missions of Flyers charities uh, are three prongs. Uh, which I pulled from their website. One, honoring our legacy of supporting family, local families impacted by cancer. Two, growing our games inclusive uh, of new and diverse participants and audiences. And three, supporting continuous improvement in sustainability and environmental responsibility. Kind of a bit all over the place there. Uh, Ivan Provorov elected not to come out for warm-ups in this game. Uh, because he did not want to put on the Pride-themed jersey and participate in that. When asked about it after the game, and he did make himself available to media, he said, quote, I respect everybody's choices. My choice is to stay true to myself and my religion. That's all that I'm going to say. The same comments were uh, echoed by Flyers coach John Tortorella. And really not a whole lot has come of it afterwards. Uh, Provorov did play in the game, played about 23 minutes in that game, and has continued to play ever since. Uh, Because everything must become a subject for the culture war, Ivan Provorov jerseys uh, have been sold out now for a while because you get anything like this and one side needs to rally to whoever it is, irrespective of the actual details or any meaningful uh, delving into what is actually going on here. Of course, it has to become an issue in the culture war, but we will delve into the actual issues that are going on here. And Dylan, I want to go to you first because 
Ivan Provorov uh, is orthodox. Um, and this is his claim, that I respect everyone's choices. My choice is to stay true to myself and my religion. Um, as someone who's orthodox, is it your understanding that uh, your religion would prohibit you from wearing a jersey like this to participate in a charitable exercise like the Flyers were doing in support of Pride Night and the LGBTQ community in Philadelphia? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, like... Every ancient religion, I mean, literally like everyone, um, this might be surprising to some listeners, but homosexuality is not considered okay uh, in Orthodox Christianity. Now, it doesn't mean that homosexual people are not ought to be loved and respected and all that sort of stuff, um, but there's a, a pretty traditional sexual ethics uh, involved um, that's part of the faith. Um, as far as an individual's, you know, where somebody's going to draw the line, I think that's probably between him and his priest. Um, you know, it might be, he's like, well, you know, can I do this and still not feel like I'm, you know, affirming something I wouldn't believe? And maybe they say yes, maybe they say no. It's just, it's, it seems like there's a disconnect between the charities and the actual pride event. So it didn't seem like they're auctioning off the jersey for like an LGBT charity, again, not that that would necessarily depend it's not, on not for the a... kind of charity and what you know. Maybe it's for you know, uh, you know, yeah, not for a specific, uh, not for a specific LGBTQ oriented charity, right. but Flyers charities. Who again, one of the three prongs of their mission says growing our games inclusiveness uh, of new and diverse participants and audiences, right. which is you know a like most kind of mission statements, nice in sure. general, and allows you to Rorschach into it pretty right. much whatever you want. I mean, I think I think for diversity's sake, they should want to be inclusive of various religious backgrounds as well as you know. If should the NHL ever have an openly gay player, which they currently do not, um, sure they should they should allow that person to play and treat them just like everyone else, all that sort of thing. But I don't I I am a bit befuddled why this is even news. Like it, it reminds me of there's a, a Seinfeld episode. So back in the day, there's a show called Seinfeld for all the Zoomers listening. It appeared on TV at a set time once a week, and it was interrupted by advertisements. But we watched it anyway because it was so good and ridiculous. And there's one episode where uh, the character Kramer uh, decides to participate in an AIDS walk. So this is a support. Uh, it's people showing up to walk and you know raise support for people with AIDS and awareness about you know AIDS prevention, that sort of thing. And he shows up, and they want him to wear a ribbon. He's like, no, nah, I don't want to wear a ribbon. She's like, you have to wear a ribbon. He's like, well, that's why I don't want to wear it, because you're telling me I have to, right? But then, So then he's walking with everyone else, and they're like, hey, this guy's not wearing a ribbon. What's the problem? Do you like AIDS? Are you, are you not opposed to it? He's like, no, I don't, I don't like AIDS. Like, I'm doing the walk. Here I am. You know? I didn't get a harumph um, from you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But everyone, everyone's just policing, you know, his expression um, to the point where he can't even he, – he's actually out there. It'd be, it'd be I mean, the, a real equivalent would be if he went out for the warm-up, but he just didn't wear a rainbow jersey, right? But So it's not quite a perfect parallel, but, um, but there is a sort of thing that's like – I don't see why anyone needs to care about this. We live in a very big, very diverse society, and people just aren't going to agree. Um, even, even, you know, let's, let's say trends continue and becomes less and less popular to hold more traditional sexual ethics. People are going to do it. There will be people in our society, and they should be, the inclusion should include them. Um, so I don't, I don't really get it. I, um, I mean, it, 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 
I see where he's coming from. I, I don't know how I would feel in that situation. I think it's a very understandable position to be in. And then you look at his statements, you look at the statements of the team. He's, you know, he's like, look, I just didn't feel comfortable based on my religion. He doesn't, he doesn't lash out. He doesn't say anything rude. You know, I don't really see where the story is. I don't see why, the, you know, this merited a headline, not to mention, uh, you know, anything beyond that. So, I mean, I think, I think the story is, is part of what a nebulous concept pride is. The team uses two phrases to describe what they're trying or two words to express what they're trying to do vis-a-vis the LGBT community. One is celebrate and the other is support. And I think it's the celebrate that you run into these issues. No one is saying that, you know, uh, Homosexual persons should be demeaned, should not be respected, should not be honored in the intrinsic dignity they have as human persons. Um, The question is, is, is that enough? Because there are folks in the LGBT community, in the wider range of focus, uh, uh, in the wider range of persons who are very interested in gay rights, that that is not enough. And I think that's where the story is, is that there are some people for whom that is not enough. Thankfully, what we have from the coaches, from Pokorov's teammates, is not that expression. No one on the team, his coaches and the Flyers organization, has been critical of this decision. They realize that, uh, you know, we all are in this world and we have duties, duties to employers, duties to God. And sometimes these duties can come into conflict and they seem to recognize that. And uh, I think the idea of sitting out rather, you know, he didn't make a stink. He just did not participate. He made it made himself available to the press. He gave a very simple, honest, straightforward explanation that he refused to elaborate on because he did not want to get dragged into this larger conflict of what it means in 21st century America for one to celebrate pride. I think that's something that uh, is actively being litigated in the culture right now and to do so would have drawn the team into 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 controversy and i think everybody conducted themselves very well and with a lot of propriety and a lot of dignity there is that element of the rorschach test of like what exactly all of this means and <clears throat> i think the charlie cook had a good piece at national review um ba- basically saying i don't understand why teams sports teams do this kind of stuff at all whatever the cause is uh and it i think it gets to we've similar things that we have talked about uh, on this program before, which is the uh, mission creep of corporations uh, to need to get involved in culture war issues. And I mean, no matter how you feel about the subject matter, about Pride Night or about however we're defining that, this is a professional hockey team getting involved in something that is a social, social cultural issue that really doesn't have much of anything to do with hockey. With one exception, and I think this um, is worth noting, that 
there is uh, a, a good amount of documentation out there. There's a lot of reporting. There are a lot of uh, players, former players, who have told stories about how, and I don't think this is going to be hard for anybody to imagine, how inhospitable the climate of the sport is, the culture of the sport amongst the players. Two players who are part of the LGBTQ community. Um, there are former players who have uh, both in the NFL uh, and um, some players who have played professional hockey at different levels who have talked about this kind of language that is used, um, that there is some kind of hostility that exists there. Now, whether that is kind of a, you know, uh, you, you're talking about younger men who are, you know, you, you get drafted out of, uh, you can get drafted in, in college at some point or if you play junior. So you're talking about people who are 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. There are players in the league as young as 21 years old. And it's not going to shock anybody to find out the 21-year-old, 22-year-olds not the most mature people in the world, especially 22-year-old young men, not the most mature people in the world. We've had plenty of stories of the reporters spelunking through Twitter accounts of now multi-million dollar athletes to find things that they have said in the past and try to hold it against them. So I think there is a an issue worth addressing in terms of the hospitableness of the culture of the sport towards people who have that sexual orientation. Uh, I don't think in that sense that efforts being made by uh, people who play the game by the league itself, by USA Hockey, by any of the associated organizations to try to say that they're – to recognize the fact that there are people with that sexual orientation out there, many of whom may want to play the sport of hockey and may come across uh, a culture where they do not feel that they are allowed to participate um, or that they can participate without feeling threatened in some way. I think that is a reality that we should acknowledge. Now – how much that has to do with his actual story, I don't know. I, I think uh, Ivan Provorov is well within his rights to make the decisions that he did, but I kind of come back to um, you know, what Dan was talking about on the kind of uh, amorphous idea of support and what that actually – celebrate, what that actually means. Celebrate was the word that you used. What that actually means. I'm sure you can have complete – reasonable disagreements with manifestations of all of that. And we should allow people to have completely reasonable disagreements with the manifestations of that. Um, but I, I, I come back to an observation that a friend of mine made, if you go back to like 2012, back when gay marriage was still uh, an issue that was being debated and we weren't quite sure how the whole thing was going to settle out. And her point was that, you know, you can be against gay marriage, perfectly reasonable to do so. Just try not to be a dick about it. And when I look at what the Flyers charities are benefiting, uh, when I look at what these jerseys that were going to be worn during warmups were going to be auctioned off to support, I think it would be one thing if we were looking at some kind of a charitable organization, we've seen stories out there about similar things like this that are supporting um, transgender transitioning uh, with young kids. There are charities that do that kind of thing that um, I, I, I'm trying to remember vaguely remembering stories the National Review had reported on on the subject matter. If that's where the money was going, I think it would be a different story. But I – while Provorov can also be entirely within his rights to uh, do what he did, it does strike me as um, a little bit dickish because this is just a little 
it strikes me as fairly benign. Um, now, we can have a debate about whether or not professional sports teams should even be engaged in these types of things. I am entirely amenable to the idea that they should not be. But the fact is they are. And I just, you know, I, I, I don't get worked up in the same way that apparently Ivan Provorov does about all of this. The social responsibility of the Philadelphia Flyers is to play good hockey. Maybe they are or are not good at that. But that that is their it's, reason it's for so existing. So. Yeah. Um, same with the Mighty Ducks. I would expect a flying V occasionally from them as well uh, to, to add a little on top of that. But um, let's, let's reverse this, all right? Um, let's say uh, start of Lent is coming up. In the Orthodox Church, the first Sunday of Lent is a Sunday of Orthodoxy, and we uh, process everyone carrying icons. We recite uh, the decision of the Seventh Ecumenical Council loudly, uh, anathematizing anyone uh, who would deny uh, that it is good and right to make and venerate images of Christ and the saints. I don't want a hockey team doing that. I, I would not feel affirmed. I would not feel... Now, I I realize there are some, some differences here, but Okay, let's say let's say this goes really bad for him, and now he starts to get marginalized for his beliefs. That would not be that would be an overcorrection. We don't need to go in this other drug. We don't need hockey players skating around with icons. You know, like that. That that's not what you need. You just need to leave people alone. I, I mean, frankly, this is a situation of live and let live. Just let him be himself. He doesn't have to wear a rainbow jersey. He doesn't just like Kramer doesn't need to wear the the AIDS ribbon. Like I mean, this is, this is where it's like it feels like a a bad tragic Seinfeld episode to me. That it's like where's the punchline here? I don't I don't get it. Like you know, it, he's not making any kind of a statement about anyone's worth or anything like that. He just didn't want to wear a rainbow jersey. Let a guy not wear a rainbow jersey. I just don't. I I don't see why this is news. I don't see why anyone cares. Um, and I, I agree. I think it does matter to the discussion to ask to what extent are we expecting our sports teams or our, you know, fast food companies or whatever, uh, to be doing the action of, uh, social activism, of charitable giving that we ought to bear ourselves, um, are, you know, to what extent are we outsourcing this? So let's say, let's say that you are uh, very politically progressive um, and socially progressive, and you not only want to support but celebrate uh, people in the LGBTQ community. Um, does going to Pride Night at uh, the Flyers-Ducks game fulfill that desire where the jerseys get auctioned off and nothing necessarily it all benefits that particular cause. Like, no, you're just outsourcing it. You're saying, I went to a hockey game, which I wanted to do anyway, and now I can feel good about myself in terms of my own social values. Um, I just don't think that's good enough. Whatever your stance here is, um, go and do something for the things you care about uh, that is actually meaningful and will actually make a difference. Don't expect a hockey team to do it for you, and please don't care. If any particular player wants to participate in that or not, care whether or not they play good hockey. <laughs> That's what you should care about. So I think Eric is right in, in terms of the NHL has historically struggled with inclusivity. 
and this is by no means and really all professional limited. sports teams. Yes, yeah. sure. Um, <clears throat> you talk to uh, you know former players who are First Nations or Matisse players. They often got a lot of static from other players about their ethnic heritage. If you took talk uh, about, you know, this is something that African-American players in the National Hockey League struggle with. Um, all of that is to the good. But the symbols matter, particularly when you're talking about, you know, this is sticks and jerseys. Jerseys have players' names on them. They have players' numbers on them. They are associated with their person. And if a person feels uncomfortable with the sort of, again, these are, these are the sort of, you know, these are rainbow sticks. I have not seen the jerseys, but these, these things are associated not only with, let's say, a recognition of equal dignity of persons, but they are also caught up in very recent political battles in this country. They are also caught up in political battles around the world. The National Hockey League is not national. It is international. There are Canadian teams. There are American teams. Many, many players come from many, many countries all over the world. Um, those struggles are live struggles. And this sort of rainbow imagery has, like it or not, political content to people. It has ethical content to people. It is not merely a limited and discreet uh, symbol saying, you know, it's okay for these folks to play hockey and we welcome them into the league. Um, there is no symbol for that. <laughs> uh, there is no iconography for let's play, which is, you know, I think the name of this charity. Um, Instead, what you had in these jerseys and these sticks were the use of symbols that communicate an ambiguous and contested meeting. And one that I think is entirely reasonable for someone in Prokhorov's uh, position to be, does this not represent who I am, what I believe? Um, and I think it's I think it's entirely legitimate. And I don't think there's I don't think there's necessarily any animus associated with it. To drive home the point about how uh, different people's conceptions of these things can drive dumb culture war battles. Uh, this year is the 50th anniversary of the release of Pink Floyd's album Dark Side of the Moon. And in launching a 50th anniversary box set, the logo that they had designed for it is uh, 50, 5, 0. And in the hole in the zero, vertically are rainbow colors. And people online, of course, being people who are online, reacted about what is this gay pride stuff that Pink Floyd is doing without apparently realizing that, of course, the original cover of Dark Side of the Moon is the famous prism uh album cover where the light comes into the prism reflects out in rainbow colors because uh, that's what happens in a prison um science is real science is uh science Optics as as yes real. as uh, uh 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 neil degrasse tyson will tell you uh oh. science is real whether you believe in it or not dylan and if you want to see a really good takedown of that go look up the stakem twitter account i am not joking with you the best uh pushback on that statement uh and the metaphysics of it uh was from the stakem twitter account metaphysics which is a good also real also real also real um I, I think 
I, I think we've gotten to this, but I, to me, the the bigger question to ask of all of this is whether or not it is true that all oars in this country need to be rowing in the exact same direction, which is the vibes that I get from debates like this. That you know the um, because to Dylan, your point, um, of course the NHL or any professional sports league is not going to do any kind of a, uh, well, there are actually some teams that do do like a faith night at the ballpark. And I am uh, the St. Louis Cardinals, I think come to mind as a team that does that. And, you know, I am, I am equally uh, disapproving or undesirous of that to be a featured ballpark night as I am of really any kind of cause or any kind of identity or any kind of anything other than the most benign seeming promotions that a team can engage in. It is just not necessary for your local sports team to be the vehicle through which you express all of your social, political, and cultural concerns in the same way that it is not necessary that every company that you buy a product from be an expression of your politics, your social views, your cultural views. It is not necessary for that. And the insistence that we have that everything needs to be moving in the same direction, that everybody needs to be a part of it, that people somehow do not realize one of the most fascist statements that is made on a regular basis is the idea that if you are not with us you're, or you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, um, is a incredibly – collectivist, totalitarian vision of the world that you cannot have the right to not care and to not have an opinion. As Eric Erickson would make the point regularly during the gay marriage debates, in which I found rather annoying at the time, and it it generally annoys me that uh, people have seemingly set out to prove him correct on this, that you will be made to care about all of these issues. You cannot not have an opinion on it. You have to take a side in all of that. And that is the part that I find the most frustrating about all of this. I mean, in this sense, this is the most encouraging thing about this. Because when I read this story, I had, I, had, I, had, I had heard buzz about this story beforehand. But when I read it, what Prokhorov said what his coach said, what his teammates said, several of which are very involved in these charities. Um, One of the players was asked for a comment on Prokhorov, and he said, it's not like that. What this is about is not about getting everybody, at at least in the Flyers locker room, if not in the larger culture. It's not about singling anybody out. It's not about introducing a sort of party line. Everyone seems to have respected Prokhorov's decision. Who matters? You know, the people in the locker room, his coach, his teammates, uh, the wider world will be the wider world with all of the miscreants that are involved in it, all of the sort of uh, salaciousness that's involved with that. But the people who actually know and care about each other, work with each other day in, day out, this doesn't seem to have been disruptive. And that's a very encouraging sign. Let's move to our second topic. If uh, you heard a giant smacking sound uh, last week, that was all of our collective heads hitting the debt ceiling, the uh, upper limit on how much the United States can borrow. And to uh, catch you up on this, if you haven't been following it, I'll give you a little bit from the January 18th edition of the Morning Dispatch and summarizing this issue. 
the national debt has ballooned beyond 130% of our gross domestic product and is only projected to keep growing, with the Treasury soon to bump up against the $31.4 trillion borrowing limit established during the last performance of this dance in 2021. House Republicans, many of whom approved tax cuts and spending hikes during the Trump era with relatively little fanfare, have rediscovered their fiscal restraint preemptively declaring any increase to the debt ceiling must be paired with spending cuts. Adopting such a stance was reportedly pivotal in Kevin McCarthy securing securing enough support to be elected speaker earlier this month. Established by Congress in 1917 to help the federal government borrow money more easily, the debt ceiling has long proved a convenient political soapbox whenever the time comes to raise it. For both sides of the aisle. In 2006, for example, then Senator Barack Obama voted against lifting the debt limit to protest George W. Bush's, quote, reckless fiscal policies. A stance he later regretted dearly when faced with his own debt ceiling battle as president a few years later. But in the past, lawmakers tended to resolve these squabbles relatively amicably. The fights were, quote, partisan but not perilous, said Laura Blessing, a senior fellow at Georgetown University's Government Affairs Institute. But the process has become a higher octane affair in recent years, with both parties' tolerance for brinksmanship reaching new levels. The coming debt ceiling negotiation could prove the most treacherous yet. So with that background now, how should we think about this battle, which is, of course, a political one, but one with clear underlying economic and fiscal realities? And how do we add into this the context that, of course, you know, this is also gets to one of my great frustrations in most political discourse, which is, again, to borrow a phrase from the Red Scare podcast that everybody's primary interest is in being a truffle swine for hypocrisy, that that is the key thing to root out here, that people once said one thing and are now doing another. But I think that's also complicated, and this is going to get interesting to me, because over the last seven years or so, since the rise of this new populist, new right, nationalist, conservative movement, that, as I followed them for the last number of years, were openly approving of the idea of the government spending a lot more money towards constituent groups that they approved of, as opposed to ones that they don't approve of. And... Being told that this kind of fiscal conservatism, the Paul Ryan seriousness with which we should uh, – he claimed that we should address entitlement spending, which of course is the largest driver of government spending, has all gone out the window since Donald Trump ran very clearly on the idea that we're not touching entitlements and was you know, in stark contrast to Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan when they ran in 2012 as the orientation of at least one of our political parties, the one that has traditionally argued for the idea of fiscal conservatism and fiscal restraint. How should we think about this issue that we keep coming across, that we keep spending more money, ballooning how much debt this country has, how much it has borrowed, only to come up with a to a credit limit that we can constantly just raise and continue on as if nothing has ever happened? Okay. So uh, with the caveat that, of course, there's there's a certain equivalency involved in this metaphor, you know, economists, I understand. Let's break, you know, this we'll take a step back in a minute. But if you imagine a family who maxes out their credit cards, um, they are faced with the decision to change their spending habits, to start paying down that credit card, paying, you know, paying it off. Uh, maybe they get help or advice from family or friends. 
Um, maybe in really extreme circumstances, they have to seek, you know, uh, legal help in terms of renegotiating their debt, maybe bankruptcy, something like that. Um, they don't get to just say, well, what if we just had more debt? Like what, you know, why not? What if we just had a higher credit limit? Like no credit card company, no bank is going to be like, oh yeah, we'll give you a loan. We'll, we'll, we'll increase your credit limit, even though you've been completely unable to pay off, uh, everything you've charged to this point. Because they have to calculate risk. They, they have to care about these sorts of things. Um, so there's, that's one. Uh, the government is basically a irresponsible family saying, let's just have more credit. Um, two. Well, kind of also is a, a, a version of that uh, famous saying that if you owe the bank $1,000, it's your problem. If you owe the bank a million dollars, it's the bank's problem. Sure. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's very true. So that's where the metaphor starts breaking down. This is a country that, uh, is, you know, for despite this sort of thing, we still have one of the most stable economies in the world. Uh, we are one of the biggest economies in the world. And so the world looks to us for stability. Um, so everyone kind of has a little bit invested in us not screwing this up. Um, we have been printing money to finance spending. Um we have been taking out debt to finance spending. Again, you can't just like write your own, like, hey, guess what? I didn't have money before, but I went to my printer and I printed out some money with like MS Paint. Um, and now I'm going to pay off my debt that way. Like no one would think that's okay. That's what our government does. Um, uh, so uh, James Buchanan, um, the economist, public choice theorist, uh, had a lot to say about public debt and default. Um, and James Alvey in the journal Markets Morality had a great article, uh, which it's academic, but maybe we'll, we'll add a link on our, our show notes because it's, it's really worthwhile read. Uh, but he talks about um, there's a variety of problems. Uh, the first one, which I'm sure people have heard before, at least I hope they've heard before, is that debt is future taxes. So when you raise the debt and you spend with debt, what you are doing is spending your children's money, your children's tax dollars. Um, unless, unless there's going to be a huge boom in demand for like national park, you know, entrance fees or whatever, the government just doesn't get that much revenue other than taxing its citizens and their activity um, and their property. Um, so that's what's being spent today. Um, it's tax revenue that needs to be generated tomorrow. Um, so that's a huge problem. That's an intergenerational problem. It's a problem of intergenerational justice. Uh, people should have consent in how their tax dollars are being spent. That was literally the, one of the foundational principles of the founding of this country, no taxation without representation. We are taxing people who have not yet been born with our debt spending. Um, secondly, he talks about, from a public choice perspective, uh, politicians are always going to do the thing that is least pain, painful from the perspective of furthering their own career. This is true of everybody in every situation. His point is this also applies to politicians. They are not uh, altruistic public servants. They are self-interested as much as the rest of us. Um, so if you have a choice as a politician between taxing people more or spending things, you know, spending with debt or cutting back on spending, uh, that is the order in which people uh, prefer things least, right? Like they, they, they don't want you to cut their, the spending on the stuff that they want and like, no matter how poorly we are using that money and spending that money, how inefficiently, uh, you know, for every $1 spent, how many cents actually make it to like a poor person in this country uh, through the government. Um, 
And so, but we don't want to actually pay for it with our money today, now. So we do it through debt. Um, so there's, there's a, I, I bring that out because there's a side to this. It's really easy to blame irresponsible politicians, and they are being irresponsible. Um, but there's also a public side. The people need to change their expectations and their appetite. We need to be okay with less spending and, frankly, sometimes increased taxes, as much as I don't like increased taxes, but... Debt is real. Uh, not only is metaphysics real and science real, but economic science is real. Um, we have scarce resources. We have limited ends. And we have reached our debt limit. Um, it's there for a reason. It's not there to just cause a political hubbub every few years until someone votes to raise it, which also we need to raise it. As <laughs> yeah. it, irresponsible as I pointed out it is, it would be terrible for us to start defaulting on our debt. Uh, the United States would then not be considered a reliable borrower, um, and that would cause cascading problems, not only across our economy, but across the world. It would be terrible. So using this as a political bargaining chip, even though it is absolutely correct to say we should not be raising the debt ceiling without some degree of either increased taxes or decreased spending or both, Holding the country hostage and the world hostage over this is also incredibly irresponsible. I mean, it's a lose-lose for everyone involved, but it's really a matter of who spins it their way, I guess, in the press and the public eye and all that. Um, But it's just a mess. And we got here because no one, including citizens, not just politicians, wants to do the responsible thing. Um, We can have nice things in this country. We really can. We can have nice programs that care for the least among us through the government, as a last resort safety net. I'm not opposed to that. Uh, But we have to live in the real world. And in the real world, there are laws of economic behavior that we cannot simply ignore. Country after country has tried to do it. They go bankrupt. They, you know, or worse. um, And it's so, so much worse for the least among us when we don't actually do our job in the first place and take care of the numbers, the boring numbers that no one wants to think about or deal with. Those things need to be taken very seriously. We all should care so much more about getting it right, specifically for those reasons. So whether you're on the right and you think we need to spend less, great. You should care for those reasons. If you're on the left and you think, no, we shouldn't take away these entitlements, or if you're on the right, apparently everyone on the right thinks that too, um, we shouldn't take away any of these entitlements. Well, how about we we figure out which ones we can do without in order to make sure we don't get rid of the ones we really need? Um, how about we figure out how to give people those benefits more efficiently instead of funneling the money through a million different government bureaucrats before they actually get to anyone who actually needs it? Um, let's let's take a hard look at what possible reforms we can do, but let's do it after we raise the debt ceiling rather than imperiling our entire economy. Yeah, this is one of the problems with uh, when we have these conversations about uh, debt and spending and entitlements is that they often coincide with this moment where we're talking about coming up against the debt ceiling. And, and Dylan, you're right about the impact that that would have, that if we right now, the Federal Reserve is doing, I believe, what they call extraordinary measures, which is basically moving some stuff around in order to make sure that we don't go over and default on our debts. So things like um, pulling back on investments and retirement p- programs uh, for government work and things like that, which, again, is not ideal. 
but also the kind of thing that we find a situation we find ourselves in because of a refusal and an inability to take any action that would alleviate this problem or begin to work us towards a solution to this problem uh, prior to these moments where we have this uh, pending catastrophe that, again, brings us up on this kind of brinksmanship that is going to happen in Congress uh, where we're going to have a fight over it. The last time that um, – not the last time it was resolved because it was in 2021 that we raised the debt ceiling and that was after many machinations. The last Last time that it came along with any kind of a compromise, a real meaningful compromise, was, if anybody remembers the magic word, sequestration, where it was a 10% cut on all budgets. Just And everybody agreed this was possibly the dumbest way of doing all of this. But it was the only way that people could agree on, except the only thing that people at the end of the day could really agree on is that they didn't really want to do the cuts part of it. And most of those were obliterated under the Trump administration. So it was under, a, again, a Republican administration that we have the obliteration of any attempts to actually cut spending or restrain it in any meaningful way. So we need to find a way to have these conversations at a time that is not the most perilous and that we do, as you said, need to raise the debt ceiling. It is unfortunate that we are here again, but it is where we are and we do need to do it because the consequences of defaulting on the debt that we have would be catastrophic. I mean, the last time in 2021 where we got to this point, it actually did come along with a downgrade of uh, the creditworthiness of the United States of America, which again is not what you want to happen. It is not a good position to be in. One of the inherent problems, though, in all of this is, do you know what's not fun? Conversations about how we need to spend less money. Nobody really likes Or raise taxes. Or raise taxes. And it's one of the reasons why I always had more respect for Bernie Sanders back in the day as opposed to Bernie Sanders now. Because what Bernie Sanders really wants, you know, it's socialism is such a loaded term, but really what Bernie Sanders wants is a Nordic state-like welfare system. And you can have that. And back in the day, Bernie was honest about what it would be, what would be necessary in order to have that kind of a welfare state. Large tax increases on the middle class because that's where the money is. Then he decided he was going to run for president. And you know what's not really all that attractive of a message when you're running for president of the United States? I'm going to raise your taxes. Just ask Walter Mondale how well that worked out for him when he said, I'm going to raise your taxes. And then he ended up losing uh, 49 states to Ronald Reagan. Not really a popular message. But he was old Bernie was right on all of that, that if you're going to have that kind of a welfare state, you need that kind of middle-class taxation. The problem is everybody, or not everybody, many people want the benefits of that kind of a welfare state, but they also don't want to pay the taxes on it. And it is, in a way, kind of a unique American problem because uh, none of the other countries that we talk about in these conversations were really founded uh, starting with a protest about taxation. So there is something inherent in the DNA of Americans that just does not want their taxes to be all that high. Whereas if you look at Scandinavia, if you look at Europe, um, generally people seem to be okay with that arrangement. Americans just generally are not. However, we want the same kind of welfare state benefits that those countries get. And that's just not a reality that's ever going to be workable. One of the wonderful things about the United States is that it's the largest, most dynamic economy in the world. And one of the reasons that I'm thankful for the debt limit, even though all else being equal, there's probably better ways to settle this, is that because we're the largest 
<clears throat> and most dynamic economy in the world. We, can, we have to remember the economist's lesson compared to what? And the reality of it is, is America, with all of its problems, is still the best bet in the world. So we have functionally, at least for now, unlimited credit. There is an appetite for American debt that cannot be satiated. We are not Greece where, you know, you got to a point where literally they could not acquire debt on open markets uh, to finance programs. There's also an opportunity. We've talked about taxes. We've talked about spending. But there is also a reality of growth as being the way out of this. This is, in fact, why we are credit worthy with our, you know, despite the fact that we're now 130 percent debt to GDP ratio. Places like Japan are 200. We are not and we are a much more dynamic economy than Japan. So you have as an opportunity, we could have hard conversations about taxes and spending as occasioned by the debt limit, which I think would be very good. But I think one way forward through all of the the political minefield that both of those things are is to look at ways to change the structure of our markets to be more free, open, dynamic, and open to growth. And this is, this is an opportunity for that, for, uh, for folks to take a look at how we regulate housing, healthcare, immigration, trade. There are gains to be made. There is more creativity in this economy that we can unleash and more innovation that will help us move forward to address these problems. Because absent growth, these problems are not going to get resolved. The political decisions are too difficult, too intractable. But if we can think, if we can think through, if we can use this opportunity of the debt ceiling to think through how do we get a more dynamic economy. Um, this 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 can be a solution that that not only addresses these debt problems, but also creates a better way of life for all Americans in the process. So one of the many things Bernie Sanders does not now or even back in the '90s understand about the Nordic countries uh, is that while they have high middle class taxes and they have a very uh, generous welfare state. Uh, they also, until recently, <clears throat> although we're we kind of have come down to match them, but they had much lower corporate taxes. They had no minimum wage. Uh, now they did have strong government support for unions, um, but still, uh, there are many ways in which you know by objective measures such as the Heritage Wall Street Journal Index of Economic Freedom, they are more economically free than the United States, and that has allowed them to also be dynamic economies, which could count on growth which could count on that tax revenue coming in because they're actually producing something. If you're not producing something in an economy, it doesn't matter how you play with all the government levers. You have no wealth. <laughs> that is where wealth comes from. It comes from production. And the way wealth gets produced is through people, um, people entering markets, people starting new businesses, um, 
these same countries, one of the things they're struggling with, one of the things we are starting to struggle with is demographic decline. Um, really hard to entice people to move to Sweden um, who are not Swedish. Uh, <laughs> um, and the United States, we have huge immigration issues. I, you know, I don't want to get into the, the details because I'm not an expert in all of that. And I realize it's a hot button issue, but it's one of the many problems. We have had a huge decline in immigration um, due to people trying to crack down and enforce our completely unenforceable and Byzantine immigration laws. Um, we, we need to change our attitudes and expectations. This is something we absolutely can fix, and I agree with Dan. The most, one of the most important ways uh, in which we can be more responsible is to have a freer, more productive economy that produces uh, you know, wealth that can then be taxed in order to pay for the things we want. Um, I also think we should do better at spending that stuff uh, in, a, in a more responsible manner um, and reform our programs and the way in which we go about it. But that's how you do it. And if you're not producing, it doesn't matter how you, you jigger with all the, the details, right? It, it, you know, you can only move around numbers for so long. But if you're not producing things, you the economy declines. So you have to have economic growth. Um, this is sometimes people bring this up, uh, you know, usually from environmental concerns. They say, you know, we can't have this growth at any cost mindset or whatever. Um, and I always find that really bizarre because the alternatives to growth are stagnation, uh, uh, recession, or depression. No one should want any of those things, and especially people who care about the poorest among us. Let's move to our final topic of the day, which is uh, Congressman George Santos, who represents New York's third congressional district now. Have we fact-checked that? Uh, we, we will get to all of that. Um, I'm not entirely convinced that there is such a place called Long Island. Okay. Um, I, uh, we may need it to send people out up, to confirm. It? it does, right? I mean, like, that's not have a real name. It's just a yeah, Long just Island. Long Island. I mean, that's a little too on the nose, don't you think? <laughs> uh, but he represents uh, 3rd Congressional District, which is northern Nassau County on Long Island and northeastern Queens. And, of course, the scandal around him, if you are not familiar with this ever-evolving story, is much of his biography seems to have be, been just a complete invention by Santos. Many things that he has claimed about uh, his life, his background, his personal story have turned out uh, not to be true when people actually started to delve into the details. And I will give you uh, here some of those claims uh, so that you can begin to evaluate them. We shall start with... Uh, that he got a full academic scholarship to law school, uh, the only one to have such a scholarship. He graduated in the top of his class, uh, first in his family to graduate from college, uh, won an international moot court competition, graduated with three degrees. His great-grandfather was a coal miner. His uncle received a Purple Heart, none of which were true. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I, uh, those are all claims that Joe Biden has made throughout his uh, political career that were also untrue, which, of course, I bring up to make the point that this is not something that is unique to George Santos, um, the current president of the United States, I mean, at one point in time, plagiarized an entire speech from Labor Party leader Neil Kinnock, including his life story, uh, which none of which were the whole thing about his dad being uh, was a great grandfather being a coal miner. That was true of Neil Kinnock. It was not true of Joe Biden. Um, but to give you the actual George Santos background here, now that I've made that clever little transition, um, he is denying that he had a, a stint as a drag queen in Brazil. He claimed that his mother uh, was in the South Tower on 9-11 and succumbed to cancer, but a green card application filed in 2003 indicated she had not been in the U.S. since 1999. 
claimed to have made uh, 750 grand a year and up to 10 million in dividends between 2021 and 2022 through a company he founded in 2021. None of this can be verified. Uh, had a career selling yachts. No details of that can be verified. Uh, had uh, claimed he owned a $1 million apartment in Brazil. Um, said on his campaign trail, his family owned 13 real estate properties, but he later told the New York Post he does not own any real estate properties and is living with his sister in her apartment in Queens, where she's allegedly facing eviction for $40,000 in unpaid rent. Boy, rent can – the rent is too darn high, um, to quote someone semi-famous. Uh, all kinds of just – an early Wall Street career uh, claimed that he worked for Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. Uh, neither of those companies have a record of him having worked for them. Um, apparently the, uh, the last, uh, story that I saw was him, uh, tweeting about that he didn't, uh, take, uh, charitable funds that allowed a dog to die. So that is the, we are at the, did the dog die portion of this whole conversation. So this thing is a, a, a bit of a marvel. Um, and this is somebody, first of all, I just have to make the statement as, as people who listen to this program may or may not know, I used to run political campaigns, uh, back in a former life. Um, not one that I made up like George Santos or Joe Biden. But I just want to say one of the key parts of running any kind of a campaign is opposition research, finding out as much as you can about your opponent. And the Zimmerman campaign was the Democrat running against uh, George Santos here. I don't know who they hired for opposition research, but I hope they never work again because how could you miss all of this? It is astonishing to me that you could miss all of this. But the question that I want to ask is, why do people do this? These The kind of things that George Santos claimed here are the kind of things that, you know, local media, the New York Times, the New York Post, um, your, again, the opposition research firm hired by your political opponent should be able to find out. Like people think opposition research is all this kind of cloak and dagger stuff following people around in the dark of night and meeting with somebody in a trench coat and a fedora in a parking garage in Washington, D.C. And that's not what it is. It is mostly going through records. It is the, the ideal kind of person to be an opposition researcher is a paralegal, somebody who is used to reviewing a whole lot of documents and trying to find inconsistencies with the narrative and what the documents represent. So these things are able to be found out. We know that now because they've been found out. So why do people do this? So I believe it was uh, Reinhold Mesner who, when asked why he climbed Mount Everest, responded, because it's there. Um, Santos strikes me as the sort of guy who is obviously a compulsive liar, apparently is good at it, although it's kind of amazing that anyone has believed any of this stuff up to this point. But it, one way or another, he's, he has pulled one over on a lot of people many times, and I bet there's a thrill to that. Um, and maybe the thought was, well, how far can I go? And frankly, I'm, I think we've all dodged a bullet in that he decided congressman would be as far as he wanted to go, and he didn't wait Right. He could he could have gone for president or I don't know, you know, U.N. general secretary, you know, something. Uh, but he stopped at congressman. So, he, you know, thankfully, most of his life will be inconsequential going forward. So uh, we're, we're all we're all OK at, at that at that point. But um, I don't know. I, some years ago, uh, I I was into, you know, some of these like personality tests, you know, Myers-Briggs and that kind of thing. Turns out none of them are very scientific. Um, but then I 
heard about one that is. Like actual psychologists use it. It's based on uh, coherent metrics. You know, so introvert to extrovert, for example, is is a, a criteria that the Myers-Briggs uses, and it is one that is genuinely scientific in that the more extroverted you are, the less introverted you are, right? Whereas some of the other, you know, pairs of attributes they have uh, are not necessarily degrees of the other, where if you add more of one, you necessarily are taking away more of the other. So anyway, I was like, okay, I want to I take a real personality test. So I went to some website that looked like it was created in the 1990s, because it probably was. Um, and I clicked on what I thought was, it was, there was a bunch of links for these, these tests. I thought was, oh, okay, I guess it's like a multi-part thing. I'll just click on the first one. Turns out the first one was a see how much of a sociopath you are test, which I'm happy to report less sociopathic than the general population in America. But in hindsight, when I realized what I had done, I realized there was a question I definitely got the wrong answer to. And that was, uh, uh, it was something along the lines of, do you agree or disagree with the statement? Uh, when I see someone, you know, who has gotten away with, you know, some sort of deception, I'm more likely to feel impressed than upset. And <laughs> in this case, I have to say, I'm just I'm just along for the ride. I'm I can't wait to find out what else are we going to discover. I mean, because this is a man who not only has a lie has lied about ridiculous things, things that no one should just believe, or at least not not even bothered to double check, right? Um, but apparently people have. But then when you find out the truth about this man's life. It is also amazing, right? Like the man was a drag queen in Brazil, you know, like this sort of thing. I'm like, really? He was among us. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't just like he was a guy who wanted to live a more adventurous life. So he made up a bunch of stuff about himself. Apparently he was having, at least by some metrics, a fairly adventurous life beforehand. And in reality, um, and he still managed to. So like it. Like, the truth is as strange as the fiction to the point where, like, maybe he uses that to his advantage. I don't know. But I'm just, I'm, I, I, I mean, I don't condone, just to be clear, do not condone uh, lying, especially politicians lying to their constituents, which unfortunately happens all the time. Um, but I, I don't, I don't condone deception, but I am, I'm just, part of me is just incredibly impressed that this guy has gotten away with this and I can't like I know tomorrow or today there's going to be some other aspect of the story and I'll be thinking to myself how how did this happen right you know or, or what how is this the truth <laughs> compared to the fiction so that's kind of the situation I'm in uh and it, he's not uh for the record I don't know if we mentioned it but um he's not stepping down um as far as we can tell um, which, There's no recall mechanism either, you know, and it, the House had the option to not seat him if they did not want to seat him, and they opted to yep, seat him say, and put him on committees. Say in a democracy, you get the government you deserve. Um, well, and uh, apparently uh, that's what we're going to get, uh, or at least that's what Long Island's going to get uh, for the next uh, two to four years. Or, uh, or perhaps uh, more yeah. appropriate in this instance to reference the uh, final lines of one of my all-time favorite books on the subject of the American federal government, P.J. O'Rourke's classic Parliament of Horrors. Uh, in stating that uh, our federal government is a parliament of whores. The only problem, as he points out, in a democracy, the whores are us. To quote Marvin, man, I don't even have an opinion. <laughs> but it has engaged, if you think about this, of, of uh, you know, these questions of, of fakery, of trickery, of this sort of thing. Uh, Patricia Highsmith's Tom Ripley novels are great. There have been uh, a couple of great film adaptations uh, 
won the talented Mr. Ripley, in which Tom Ripley is played by Matt Damon. Another Ripley's game, less well-known, in which John Malkovich plays an older Ripley. Um, there's also Orson Welles' F is for Fake. And during the opening of Orson Welles' F is for Fake, which is a wonderful meditation on art, on fakery, on forgery, he talks about how a magician is not really a magician, but he's an actor that plays a magician because magic isn't real. And I'm wondering if there's a politician analog and that if all politicians aren't actors playing politicians. And if so, this could be a useful skill set. Yeah, I mean, there's... um... I believe it was Leslie Jones has been filling in on The Daily Show this last week. Uh, and she just pointed out, like, think of how bad of a liar you have to be to be known as the lying politician. Because <laughs> <laughs> they all do it. You know, so there's there does seem to be something perhaps genuinely sociopathic about George Santos. I don't know. He doesn't seem to, you know, evidence any guilt or anything like that. Um but on the other hand, as you pointed out, you know, our current president, frankly, our former president, um, probably <laughs> we could we could go into all sorts of examples that are, uh, you know, not to the same degree, but are still alarming um, in terms of including lying about stuff that is completely inconsequential, lying just for the sake of lying in a sort of pathological sense. Um, there is something about I don't want to harp on on this again, but there's something about the structure of our politics that incentivizes this sort of person to not only run, but also win uh, in elections in our country. And it's maybe uh, a good, uh, uh, you know, signpost that we should perhaps wonder, is there a way to build a better mousetrap? Is there a way at least to reform some of the mechanisms uh, of the way in which our elections work, the way in which our democracy works, so that it is more representative, so that our politicians are more boring, (laughs) more normal, um, instead of just the latest, you know, circus come to town? To quote Orson Welles, do you think I should confess to what? Committing masterpieces. This is, does seem to be a bit of an outgrowth of the uh, uh, entertainment nature of our politics now. So, like in a way, the way I expect George Santos to respond to this to to invoke a different movie is uh, a little bit more um, Maximus Decimus Meridius standing in the middle of the Colosseum, yelling, "Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained?" Because I think we are. And sadly, that is what we're asking for from our politics right now. And unsurprisingly, we're getting what we're asking for. Among his many claims, he claimed to be Jewish. And then when it was shown he was not Jewish, he said, no, 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 no. I didn't say Jewish. I said Jew-ish. Which has to be one of the greatest Which, quotes in the history again, of American is politics. is terrible, but I couldn't help but smile it's at amazing. how ridiculous that is. It's yeah. utterly so there, amazing. There, yeah, there is, you know— it, is George Santos a monster or a masterpiece? Perhaps that is the question we all ought to ask ourselves, and why? Yeah. Let's call it a wrap there. I want to thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes where you'll find a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. 
Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. And once again, if you have questions or comments for the show, please email them to us at unwind at acton.org. That's unwind at acton.org. And again, if we read your question or comment on the air, you'll get a complimentary, that does mean free, book from the Acton catalog. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.